I never grow tired of hearing the gospel sung. How about you? If you're a guest here and you're not familiar, one of our goals is that we preach the word, that we sing the word, that we pray the word, specifically that we sing the gospel, we preach the gospel, we pray the gospel, we get to celebrate the gospel in the Lord's table that is here today to remind us that there was a price paid for us to be at that table. And I hope that each of us will be those who one day when we dwell with the Lord will never stop asking, why am I here? Why am I here? I'm keenly aware that it's only on the merits of Christ and none of our own. Keenly aware that we are those that have been rescued and set free. And if we would meditate much on that, I guarantee it would make a difference on Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Thursday during the day. We would meditate much on the gospel, how our weeks would be different. We'd be reminded of our great Redeemer and what he's accomplished for us. We are in a series in the book of Ruth, and the book of Ruth is not very long. It's four chapters. It takes place about a thousand years before Christ came. And in a period that wasn't uh, great, uh, Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges, and the Judges, the book itself, the book right before Ruth, ends with this verse and says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But we've been able to see in the book of Ruth some folks who exhibit incredible character. Uh, we also have been able to see God's providence, though sometimes hidden yet, his sovereignty, controlling and ordaining things as we go about our daily activities. If you were to go out of here today and someone were to ask, what is Ruth 3 about? You just need to respond with one word, redemption. What's it about? Redemption. Good. Let me give you some definitions. You want to write at the top of your notes? I didn't do that for you because I don't want to completely baby you and give you everything. I'd ask that you actually move a pen every once in a while. Uh, you want to write two words. The word redemption and the word redeemer. The word redemption and the word redeemer. And depending on how old you are, you would say, uh, redemption is what you do with green stamps. Redeemer is the one who has the most of them, right? I remember that? I remember growing up uh, in Leesville, we would go, there used to be a, like, what was it, S&H? Was that the name of those green stamps? And there was a store in DeRitter. We would come down and, and trade it out uh, there, in, there in DeRitter and get out as fast as we could. So, uh, the word redemption. Here's what you want to write. Now, this is a technical definition, but let's, let's persevere. The word redemption involves the release of people, involves the release of people, animals, or property from bondage through outside help. Redemption involves the release of people, animals, or property from bondage through outside help. Redemption, the roots of it are in the Old Testament as it carries over into the New Testament. Redemption is closely associated with the purchase price of a slave. As you carry over into the New Testament, redemption is closely associated with the purchase price of a slave. But Redemption on a whole in the Bible is, involves the release of people, animals, or property from bondage through outside help. So the, in case you're missing it, uh, these folks are in a situation and they can do nothing about it themselves. Sound familiar? 
and they need someone to step in and to help them in a way that they cannot do for themselves. So now let's give you a definition uh, for the word redeemer. Uh, I want to give you two. Here's the first one. The one who pays the price. Good definition for the word redeemer is the one who pays the price. And number two, the one who releases those that are bound. The one who releases those that are bound. In the Old Testament, it's technically the one who unlooses. Since I figured releases might be easier for us than unlooses, that's uh, what we went with. So the Redeemer is the one who pays the price, the one who releases those that are bound. Now here's why all of that's important. As we enter Ruth chapter 3, we have two widows that are in desperate need. They're impoverished. They're in danger. Not every man's a good man. Have you figured that one out yet? Not every man is a good man. <laughs> Gayan said, Amen. <laughs> uh, I hope none of you looked at your spouse. But not every man's a good man. These widows are in danger, and, and they need someone to desperately change their situation. And Ruth is going to go to Boaz, and she's going to say, Are you that guy? Are you that guy? Are you going to change our situation? Are you going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves? And of course, in Ruth and Boaz, friends, we're going to see a picture of us and Christ. So I'll invite you to stand with me. We're going to begin reading in chapter 3. And if you've never studied Ruth, uh, chapter 3 is one of the most difficult texts in the very short book. But have no fear. I've got it completely figured out. So we should be all right couple things that we'll see here. Our spiritual situation needs to be changed, and only Christ can change it. Our responsibility is to take refuge and then rest in our Redeemer. Beginning in verse 6, here's what Ruth does. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Father, we thank you for this text. God, I thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you that you have inspired it, that uh, you made sure that it was written down, and then through the generations you've made sure that it was passed down, and through it you still speak to us. And not just of uh, an incredible story of a Moabite who had no right to the family of God who yet becomes ultimately part of that lineage of the Messiah. Father, what an incredible picture for us who are Gentiles. But Father, we are grateful that we see and hear your providence. Most importantly, you as our Redeemer. We are those who are keenly aware of our spiritual situation, that we are bound by sin and death. And there is only one who can set us free, and that's Christ Jesus. And so as we celebrate his table today, we want to first celebrate the truth in his word and what he alone has accomplished for us so god would you speak to us about ruth and boaz but would you also speak to us about us in christ it's in his name we pray amen as you're seated uh, would say to you i titled it our redeemer for those of you who are younger i was tempted to title ruth chapter three i ain't no hollaback girl but that's in a whole nother realm for those of you who are older just don't look it up. So, 
I would like to point out three simple truths from Ruth chapter 3 today. The first one is this. Like Ruth, we need to recognize our Redeemer. Like Ruth, we need to recognize our Redeemer. And I think there are two parts to this. First of all, recognizing our need for redemption. Second of all, recognizing who that Redeemer is. So recognizing our need for redemption. And then second of all, recognizing our Redeemer. Here's what verses 1 through 5 say in chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Does anyone know what winnowing is? I had to look it up. I didn't know the difference between winnowing and Winnie the Pooh this week. And so I was able to do research and discover we didn't do a lot of winnowing in Leesville. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, on the outset, this sounds pretty sketchy. How many of you would say this sounds, not pretty, real sketchy? How many of you would say that you would probably never say to your daughter, hey, go lay down to feed the old dude after he's eaten and drunk, all right? How many of you would say you've never given that counsel to your daughter? All right? Well, I would say that's good. And we would also want to say uh, and point out that, that this is what happened. It's not necessarily telling us this is what we should do. All right? So as you're giving advice on dating, this is just telling us what happened with Ruth and Naomi. It's not necessarily prescriptive. This is what we should all do. If you're a single woman, I'm not encouraging you to go to a restaurant today and lay down the first dude's feet you see. All right? So just put that in your mind. All right. What is happening? Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her in verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Naomi understands the reality of their situation. They are two widows. There are no heirs. There is no one to take care of them directly. And in that state, one, they're in poverty. Two, they're in servitude. Three, they're in danger from every other man who might cause them harm. And so Naomi understands what's happening. But the incredible part is, Naomi says, look, I want to do for you uh, something that's kind. I want to find rest for you. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. She knows that Ruth didn't have to do what she did for Naomi. Naomi also knows she doesn't technically have to do this for Ruth, but it's a part of the chesed. What's that word? We talked about it last week. Kindness. It's part of the kindness that we see all through the book of Ruth. And one of the things that Naomi grasps is, we need redemption, Ruth. We need redemption. But this is something that I would encourage us to not miss. So do we. We need redemption. We may not be widows, and we may not be completely impoverished, but the Bible says spiritually we are. It says spiritually that we're in bondage, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that we are spiritually dead, and that we are separated from God. So like Ruth and Naomi, we have something in common with them. We can't change our own situation. And like Ruth and Naomi, we should find ourselves asking the question, who is both willing and capable to change our situation? For them, it was physical. For us, it's spiritual. Who is both willing and capable to change this? Because we can't do it on our own. We cannot be reconciled to God on our own. They could not uh, be released from the poverty and servitude uh, on their own. So, and the issue is recognizing a Redeemer. For Naomi and Ruth, it was pretty easy. Here's what she says in verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young men you were? 
Uh, for Naomi, the obvious candidate is Boaz, and here's a couple reasons. One, he's a relative. She has said that in this passage. Prior to this, in chapter 2, she says he's a redeemer. Here's two reasons. Uh, what about Boaz? He's a relative of ours. Now, we want to be careful. There's no hint of Arkansas as we talk about these things today. I just want to throw that out there. This is not wrong as it currently is in our day. I will encourage you, do not go to the family reunion looking for a spouse. That is wrong, okay? But in this day, there were some things that were okay with it. And we can talk further if you're unclear, but it was okay. So he's a relative. He's a redeemer. Here's a couple other things that really aren't rocket science as we continue on our path. Uh, he's single. He's kind. He loves God. He's right in front of our face. All right? Isn't it incredible how sometimes the mystery of God isn't that mysterious? Isn't it interesting how Ruth just happened to be led to the field of a guy who was single, who was wealthy, who loved God, who was generous, who was related to him? That's incredible how all that just happened, right? So Ruth and Naomi, Naomi's like, well, this isn't deep stuff, Ruth. Here's a good candidate for our Redeemer, Boaz. He's our relative. He's, he is a Redeemer. For us, and I won't dwell here at this point, recognizing our Redeemer, there's only one. There's only one who has ever paid the price. We sang in the song there that he took our judgment. There's only one who has ever paid the price in order for us to be able to dwell with God. And that's Christ Jesus. So there's no one that we would look to. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. So he is who we look to. Let me give you some, what I call, learning and living points. As we, we learn what's in Ruth, we want to live the truth of these things. And here's the first one. God's restoration frees us from self-absorption. Do you remember when Naomi came back from uh, Moab? And how bitter she was at the end of chapter 1. And she's like, don't call me pleasant. It's all bitter. I'm sad. I'm empty. I have nothing. It's amazing as the story rolls out. We find out she has Ruth. She has a cousin. She has a field. But I have nothing. Right? This is Naomi. Here's the incredible transition we see in chapter 3, verse 1. Naomi is no longer concerned with just Naomi. Naomi is concerned with Ruth. And what's best for her. This is a picture of God's restoration. You see, God's restoration frees us from self-absorption. She wants Naomi to be able to rest. Hold your place there at the first verse. And then go to verse 18, the last verse in the chapter. Naomi is going to... Naomi, not Naomi. Naomi is going to reply to Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Is there a common word in the first verse and the last verse? She, right? No, yes, I'm just kidding. Rest, yes. Good for the two of you that are following. Rest is a common word. Here's what Naomi wants. She wants Ruth to be able to rest. She knows that she's not going to be there for always. And do you know what it would be like to be a foreign woman in this land who is a widow, who has no one when you're left? She wants Ruth to be able to rest. So I love that God has worked at least something in Naomi, that she's no longer just dominated by Naomi. I wonder about us today. I wonder if there's something about our circumstances that's causing us just to focus on us, and we need the Lord to free us, to help us, to be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. Here's the second learning and living point. God's sovereignty does not eliminate our responsibility. Here's something that we're learning from the book of Ruth. God's sovereignty does not eliminate our responsibility. Naomi is clearly aware of God's providence. She's the one uh, that said in chapter 2, verse 20, 
that the Lord has done this. The Lord has worked this. It was Naomi that was aware of God's working. But she also knows that we uh, shouldn't, that we should, his sovereignty does not mean that we should be passive in everything. So here's the situation. Naomi says, we need a redeemer. So what you could do is sit around the house and say, God, we need you to bring a man to the house. Could you let him ring the doorbell between 3 and 3.30? I'll be dressed and ready, you know? We could do that, or we could do something about the situation. So God's sovereignty does not necessarily mean we should not move and plan and have actions. We see that Naomi actually has a plan, and here's what she does. She devises a plan. Here's what she says in verse 2. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So Naomi devises a plan, and here's why it's important. The harvest is over. As you look at verse 23, the last verse in chapter 2, here's what it says. So she, Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, if this were a movie, here's what's happening. They have gone to this destitute land because Elimelech, who says, my God is my king, doesn't live that out in his life, so he leads his family in chapter 1 through this land that he shouldn't have because the Moabites were God's enemies, but he does it. He dies. His two sons die, so he leaves his wife there all alone with these two foreign daughter-in-laws. So this movie opens, it's pretty depressing. It's kind of like Finding Nemo or any other Disney movie, right? You can bank on it. If it's a Disney movie, someone's going to die in the first one minute, right? Anyone seen Bambi? If you haven't seen it, I hate to spoil it for you. Deer dies, okay? So, and I cried. Tara gives me a hard time, you know, but I'm, I'm actually sentimental, you know? So when Nemo's the only one left, it's tender, you know? So this is kind of like a Disney movie. It opens up tragic. And then it comes back, and there's some cracks in the tragedy because... The barley harvest is happening. The wheat harvest is happening, right? And then there's an even bigger ray of hope because there's this man, right? And he's single and available. But what seems to happen is no other conversation is recorded, all right? So it's like time is ticking down. And you see at the end of chapter 2, she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This would have been about six or seven more weeks, so it's kind of like... Boaz meets, and there's this incredible, oh, he's the one, and then it like flatlines, because there's like nothing, you know? Ruth goes and works in the field, and she comes home, and Naomi's like, what did you and Boaz talk about? And Ruth is like, nothing. He didn't even say hello to me today. What's wrong with him, Ruth? You know, there's all this stuff that's going on, right? And so the reality is, the harvest is over. Ruth isn't going to be working in, the, in, in Boaz's fields anymore. That part is done. These are the final stages. So it's probably a good time. If you're going to set up a secret meeting, now's a good time to do it because there aren't going to be a lot of other opportunities. So she devises a, a, a plan. Time's ticking down. And so she says, it's got to be about the right place. And she says, see, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. If you don't know what the threshing floor is, I didn't. It is a raised platform, would have been closer on top of a hill. And what they would do is they would take all the sheaves and they would take an oxen or they would take a cart and they would crush those husks to break them. And then they would take a fork and this is what the winnowing is. They would raise it up in the air and because it was up on the top of the hill, the wind would catch the chaff and it would blow away, but the grains and the kernels would fall back down. And this is what they would do. 
Boaz has got to be, I mean, he may be older, but this guy has got to be pretty tough because this brother's winnowing. And at night, you know, he's like, I got this, you know. And so he's winnowing. And so the threshing floor, and there's some wisdom in this because not everyone would be there. And then Ruth says the right, prep, uh, Naomi says there's got to be some right preparation. Verse 3, wash therefore and anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. There is a word to be said that if you are looking for a husband, it is to your credit not to smell awful, right? Okay? But I want to be even more clear about this. Most likely, Ruth has worn the garb of a widow. Most likely, all the signs have been as she worked in the field, she's wearing the widow's garb, stay away from me kind of thing. I'm in a period of mourning. So don't mistake this. Naomi is not trying to get Ruth to seduce Boaz. Naomi is not saying, go put on your best perfume, doll yourself up, put on your favorite dress. That's not what she's saying. Matter of fact, she says, cloak. And there's a reason for that. If she's going to be at the threshing floor in the middle of the night, it's going to be cold. This would be that outer garment. But she is saying here, the time for mourning is over. Put on the dress that's going to indicate to him, okay, we can move forward if that's what you desire. So uh, the right time. And I love that she says, don't make yourself known until he's finished eating and drinking. Wouldn't it be cool if all our wives did that, fellas? Wouldn't that be interesting? I'm just kidding. None of the ladies laughed. But all the fellas did, so I'm thankful for that. We're together. Here's what she says. It's got to be about the right time. After he's worked, he's worn out, let him eat, let him drink. And I also want to be clear, this is not about inebriation. This is about celebration. Do you know why this is a special time? Remember what happened? They had a famine in this land. Now God has returned and they actually have a harvest. And so there is a celebration. They would rejoice in the harvest and not in inappropriate ways, but in the great celebration of knowing God is the one who provided that. I think as Baptists, we could actually learn a lot from celebrating in these things. It wouldn't, wouldn't hurt us to see what they do. But she says, look, it's got to be about the right time. Let him finish eating and drinking. He would not have been drunk, but he would have been, as it says, merry. He would have been content. All right? So then, here's what you do. It's the right action. She says, watch where he lies down. Verse 4. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this is the, what I believe is part of the sketchiest part of the passage. And uh, I want to be very clear that I don't believe that it, it is about inappropriate sexual things that are happening here. And I have some reasons for that. Four reasons in the book of Ruth. Every time this word feet is used in Ruth, it means feet. The one time that this exact word is used in one other place is in Daniel, and there it means legs and feet. So there are some that would take this passage and distort it and make it sensual, and they would present Ruth as one who's trying to seduce Boaz and do whatever is necessary in order to have a redeemer. I think that goes clearly against what Boaz is going to say. Everyone in this town knows you're a virtuous woman. And Boaz's reaction himself is going to tell us, it's not what everyone else tries to read into this passage. It is the sign, I'm going to lay at your feet, I need you to cover me. One of the parts of the marital customs is that they would take their cloak, the man would take his cloak, and he would cover the woman as a part of that sign of, I will protect you. You will come under my provision. And so this is, in essence, what she's doing. And so what the, the risk is, is that Boaz will receive it rightly. She says, and he will tell you what to do there at the end of verse 4. So you have the right preparation, the right time, the right place, the right action, and you're hoping for the right response. 
right? And so uh, you're hoping that he's going to do the right thing. Here's why I say that uh, providence and planning go together. Uh, there is no father in this case to arrange the marriage. And I think there, there is a word here, uh, dads and and uh, one other contemporary pastor has done an interesting thing on dating versus courtship. And he says, you know, courtship is about the young man coming into our home and dating me first and dating the brothers first. And then, if he's lucky, he gets to the daughter. He says, uh, but the other aspect of dating was young men began to show up, take the daughter out of the home, and then take her away and say, look, we bought these meals. You owe me stuff. And so there's a word here. I think for all of us, of, of thinking through how that happens and poor Arabella and Adelaide and poor sucker that shows up for the first time. But in Ruth's case, there is no man. There's no one else to arrange this marriage. And what she's doing as a widow, she is completely free to do. And matter of fact, it is customary to do. I'm going to set myself at your feet. Will you, will you be the one? Will you provide... Uh, Kevin DeYoung has written a book called Just Do Something. And if you have someone graduating from high school or college and they want to know God's will, you should pick up that book for them. It's called Just Do Something. Kevin DeYoung says that we are so paralyzed by trying to discern God's will that we don't do anything. You know, the majority of God's will is revealed in Scripture. He wants you to have a job. He just doesn't tell you specifically which one, but have a job. He wants you to take care of your family. He wants you to spread the gospel. What God wants, clearly, is revealed in his will. In the other things, we are free to live and move. One thing that helps us know how to make these decisions and how to plan, even in light of his sovereignty, is, one, know what his word says. Two, process our motives. And three, go for it. So know what his word says. If God gives clear guidance of general things, if this is what my will is, I don't have to pray about First Thessalonians 4, this is God's will, your sanctification. God wants each of us progressing in holiness. I don't have to pray for it. God wants each of us making disciples. You should all be able to write down on paper today who you're discipling. God does this. This is his will. These things aren't mysterious. When we're trying to decide, should I do this or that, one of the clearest things is assess my motives. Is it about selfishness? Is it about my own renown? Are there other things? If there are no selfish motives, and sometimes we just go for it. And this is what we see in this passage. I think about William Carey, you know, when he was beginning to say, look, God wants us to go to the nations. And a well-meaning man stood up and said, if God wants the heathen saved, he'll do it himself, right? A well-meaning man. William Carey says he does want the heathen saved. We don't have to miss that. It's in Scripture. And we are a part of that process. And so William Carey said, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. I think about an illustration my pastor told years and years ago of the fact that God will save us, right? The man is on his roof, and it's flooded all around, and he's trusting that God will save him, and a raft floats by, and someone on another roof points and says, get on the raft, and he's like, no, God's going to save me. A guy in a boat comes to the guy's roof, you know, and he says, uh, get in the boat, and the guy's like, no, God's going to save me, and a final attempt, a helicopter comes over, drops a rope ladder down says climb up the guy's like nope god's gonna save me and of course you've heard this you know that the man drowns he goes to heaven and he says god i thought you would save me to which god's response is i tried three times i can't do much better than that you know right and so sometimes we are so paralyzed by the thought of god's sovereignty that it keeps us from moving if there's anything we see in ruth 
God uses our daily actions. God uses our movings and our going. And he's sovereign over all of it, friends, good and bad. And so we ought to be free to be able to move about. Here's one more thing that's encouraging. It's that faith is not always a blind leap. So as Naomi says, hey, Boaz, why don't you consider Boaz? It's not completely a blind leap, right? It's not like she just saw this guy's profile on the Internet and was like, he looks cute. Here's what she knows already. She knows that Boaz was a worthy man. We see that from chapter 2. We, she knows that Boaz has already extended kindness to them. She knows that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. But most importantly, Naomi knows that God has not forsaken them. Friends, not all faith is a blind leap. Matter of fact, trusting in Christ is not a blind leap. We see clearly all that he has accomplished for us in the cross. And so to trust in Christ is not necessarily just a blind leap that we don't have to analyze and think through. I think the facts are very clear, and we put our confidence in what we see. Just some things as we open to know that, look, we all need redemption. We all need to recognize who our Redeemer is. For Ruth and Naomi, that was Boaz. For us, it's Christ. Brings us to ask, well, one, one final question. Let me ask you a question before I transition to this next point. I wonder, you see what Naomi does to Ruth. She points... Uh, Ruth to Boaz as the Redeemer. I just wondered as we transition from this point, how many of us are pointing others to the Redeemer? I wonder how many of us, as we interact with our friends on a daily basis, we're able to say, Christ is your Redeemer. Christ is your Redeemer. Go to Him. Plead to Christ. We want to take a cue from Naomi here. All right, second aspect of this passage. Like Ruth, we need to take refuge in our Redeemer. What's going on in these verses? Well, it says in verse 6, So she went down to the threshing floor and did, just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So <laughs> let me stop there. What's going on? Ruth has followed Naomi's plan. She's bathed. She's anointed. She's got on her cloak. She's gone down. All right? I love that in the story of just happens, Boaz just happens to go lie down at the end of the grain. So in a, in a further area, not right in the center of the threshing floor, but an area that would allow for some conversation and even perhaps some privacy. But uh, this is not completely rare. This is what the men would do. After you've harvested the grain, you don't want anyone to steal it. So they would spend the night there, and he is laying there. He's not passed out. He's laying there by the grain. If someone takes it, he's going to know, right? Here's what I love. Ruth uses her ninja skills and creeps up, right? It says she came softly. The Hebrew word there means ninja. And she uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, honestly, how many of you would say, that would scare me greatly? You roll over in the middle of the night, and someone's laying at your feet, and you, they weren't there when you went to bed, right? Sometimes that happens in my home. Arabella will cry in with us, and I got an elbow on my face, and I wake up, where did this come from? It's not, what? Oh, it's not mine. Okay, so, you know, and you go through this process. He wakes up, and he's startled. Who wouldn't be, you know? And so here's what Ruth says to him. And I wonder, it doesn't say in the text, but I'm wondering, like, once she laid down at his feet, did she just lie awake there? And she's like, is he going to wake up? Is he going to wake up? And then, you know, she was like, does he snore? Oh, no, he doesn't. Is there someone else who could redeem us? You know? I wonder what all happened in the inter intermediary time, you know? <laughs> Sorry. So, I just thought about it this week, you know, because... 
whenever he's startled, it's not like she's groggy. She's like, I'm Ruth, your servant, you know? She's ready. It's like she's been waiting on it, you know? She's like, here's my part. I'm Ruth, your servant, you know? And so uh, then she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And I think this is very important. A prostitute would have said such as the garment and this kind of idea. But hold your place there. Look back in chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what Boaz said to Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is what Boaz says to her in his prayer for her, is that the Lord would reward you for you've come under his wings to take refuge. Now what she says in the middle of the dark there on the threshing floor, she says to Boaz, she says, I'm your servant, I'm Ruth, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz, answer your own prayer. Boaz, answer your prayer. And I want to be careful that she's, she's not proposing to him. I think more clearly what she's doing is, I'm proposing that you propose. I'm proposing that you do what's right. I'm willing. I'm saying yes. And I want you to, to play this role. Now you go and do the things that are required. She doesn't know what will happen. And it's incredible because Boaz's response could be a couple things. Boaz could say, you're just after me for my money, you crazy foreign woman. He could. Boaz could say, you're like a prostitute. You've snuck here in the middle of the night. Boaz could take advantage of her. But what does Boaz do? He prays for her. How many of you know every time you pray on a date, it tends to go in better directions, right? So any shadiness that the author might have us sort of leaning towards, right? Any shadiness? The incredible part is that gets nipped in the bud whenever Boaz's response is, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. How about you guys? When you get woken up in the night, is the first thing that rolls off your lips a prayer? Boaz is amazing to me. He is amazing to me. And I know it's not the first thing that rolls off my lips, but Boaz, the first thing that rolls out, and as we've seen, this is his habit. Remember back in chapter 2 when he came to the field, the first thing he says to his servants is a prayer. The first thing that he says at night is a prayer. This is his habit. This is his character. He is a worthy man. From the overflow of the heart come the words of the mouth. And, and Boaz obviously interprets this correctly and with righteousness. And he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness. Any idea what that word is there? Uh, yeah, I said, all right. What is it? Hased. What is it? Good. You have made this last hased, this last kindness, greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. I think there are a couple of reasons. Why Why hasn't Boaz done this? I think a couple of things. I think there's an age gap between he and Ruth. There's obviously a nationality gap. He is an Israelite. She is a Moabite. But even more, we're going to see there is a redeemer who's even closer. And so Boaz is not overstepping his bounds, Boaz continues to be a man of a character. A couple of things I've written on your notes there. The role of the one being redeemed is what we see. Take refuge. Uh, I'm proposing that you propose. I'm asking you that you be God's answer for me, which we said last week. You know, when you pray and ask God to provide for someone, just realize he may want you to be a part of that provision. So when you're praying and asking God to provide, he may use you in that process. But here's the role of the redeemer. So Ruth has laid it out, and now the role of the Redeemer is to take responsibility. So the one being redeemed takes refuge, but the one who's redeeming takes responsibility. And I would like to point out one other thing about Boaz here. I love that Boaz is not dominated by urges. 
you know. He could have taken this in a really bad direction. But there's such a picture here of his character. I shared with you before, you know, when I spoke for some super summers in Kansas, I was standing in the back of the room when a young man inappropriately touched a woman, in a, 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 a young girl, in this worship center. So the worship service is going on. People are singing, you know. But this guy reaches up and inappropriately touches this girl in front of him. And I immediately moved up to him and I said, what are you doing? And his response to me was, well, I had an urge. And so then my response was, I have an urge to punch you in the face. Do you want me to act on my urge? He's like, no. And so one of the things that I love about Boaz, as we see here, he's not a man dominated by urges. And if there's a reminder to any of us, our bodies were bought at a price. We're not created just to satisfy our urges. There's no doubt Boaz, single man, he had Ruth, middle of the night, there probably were some cravings. He's not dominated by that. He's dominated by holiness. And as we learn in Corinthians, and we were bought at a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Here is the role of the Redeemer. And it's take responsibility. And there's a couple things that he does. The Redeemer promises. He says, I will do for you all that you ask. You see, this is not rebuke. This is reassurance. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. There in verse 11. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So the Redeemer promises. The Redeemer protects. He says, do not fear. And he's going to say it later again. How many times does God say that in his word to his people? Over and over and over. Do not fear. So the Redeemer promises. The Redeemer protects. He says, do not fear. And then he says this, remain tonight in verse 13. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. The Redeemer protects. He says, remain tonight. It wouldn't be safe for her to walk back in the middle of the night. Not everyone was like Boaz. And some of those guys probably were drunk. And not everyone would have her best intentions. So he says, look, remain here. But he also has the best interest of the one redeemed in mind. And he says, uh, verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. Boaz didn't want her reputation tarnished. He said, you need to go back before anyone's there. He says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor in verse 14. So the Redeemer promises, but the Redeemer protects. He says, don't fear, remain. And he always has the best interest of the redeemed one in mind. And then another picture is that the Redeemer provides. It says in verse 17 that, uh, well, he, in 15, he says, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city. So here's what Ruth has done. She, she flees to him. She's taking refuge and says, are you going to be the guy who's going to change my situation? And a part of being the guy who changes that situation is provision, it's protection, it's promise, I'm going to be with you. But my favorite thing about, uh, about this whole passage are, are the last two aspects that I would point out in that is this. One, the Redeemer chooses to do this. What makes chapter 3 so beautiful to me is that Boaz is not required to do this. Boaz is not obligated to do this. Boaz chooses to do this. So, as uh, someone said this morning, Jay, it's not out of duty, it's out of beauty that uh, Boaz is acting. But let me show you why. Uh, hold your place and turn back to Deuteronomy, chapter 25, where we have the Leverite marriage. I know that many of you studied that this week, and you're meditating much on Leverite marriages. Boaz's redemption of Ruth and Naomi was not primarily one of duty, but... 
one of desire and delight. He was not forced to redeem her. He chose to. Here's what I mean. Deuteronomy chapter 25 says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she will answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. All right? I love the Bible. It makes me laugh, right? You should be like, where are you going on vacation? Oh, we're going to the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. It's a great destination. It's awesome. People get their sandals pulled off and spit in their face. So what happens is uh, for a man to die and to not have an heir, his name would be blotted out from his, Israel's history. And so one of the ways that was made for that not to happen is that a brother or a cousin or someone that was eventually kin could be a part of the redemption process to provide that heir so that the one who has died, his name continues on. Well, what we find from Deuteronomy 25 is that he doesn't have to do it. He's expected to do it, and he's encouraged to do it, but he doesn't have to. Now, it's to his own shame. He's going to get his sandal pulled off and spit in his face, but he doesn't have to do that. But in Boaz's case, not only does he not have to, he's not the closest one. He says, look, verse 12, and now it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. I love that Boaz is such a man of integrity. It's not just what we do, but how we do it, right? It's how we do it. And so he says, look, there's one that's closer than I. The, the beautiful picture in this is Boaz isn't obligated. Boaz is choosing to redeem. Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound familiar to you at all in the broader message of the Bible? You see, friends, God is not obligated to redeem us. He does not have to redeem us. He does not have to set us free from sin and death. God chooses to redeem us. And it's a beautiful picture. So let me give you that second part then. Not only does the Redeemer choose to do so, and that make it beautiful, but the Redeemer chooses to do so at great cost. A price has to be paid. And with that, I want you to hold your place and turn to Ezekiel. A lot of the image is to the right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, chapter 16. A lot of the imagery of spreading the garment over or being under the wings comes from Ezekiel 16. Now, if you've not read Ezekiel 16, my, my defense to you is I'm going to read parts of it. Uh, I didn't write it. It's in the Bible. These are the words that are contained here. But it's an important picture as we think about what it means to be the Redeemer and redemption. So... Boaz promised, Boaz provides, but he does so because he chooses to, and he does so at great cost to himself. In Ezekiel 16, here's what God is trying to say to Israel. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are the land of Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. 
nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on that day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Here's what God is saying to Israel. He says, you want to know your history? It's me. When I came along, you were nothing. I made you something, and I gave you the very best of something. Most importantly, I gave you myself. I covered you with my garment. And you came under my provision and my protection. And you see the lavishness of that. Now the problem is what Israel does with those things. He says, verse 15, But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore because of your renown. And lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines. And on them played the whore, the like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I've given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them, and also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord. So you see what it is? God says, when you were nothing, I made you something. I gave you the very best myself, and I gave you all these things. And then what you've done? you've cheated on me you've taken everything that I gave you and you've used them on other lovers you've turned your back on me now in our day and age this is where the world would say you're on your own I cut you off but look at how Ezekiel 16 ends because it's important as we understand the redeemer mindset in Ezekiel 16 beginning in verse 59 for thus says the Lord God I will deal with you as you have done you have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. As... Uh, we see in Ezekiel, God comes along and he says, I'm going to be your redeemer. I'm putting my cloak over you. They rejected all of that love. And God could have written them off. But God says, not only am I going to keep you, I'm going to pay the price that's necessary to make up for all of this. And of course, Romans 3 tells us what that price was. Ezekiel 16, God says, I'm going to atone for you. And Romans 3 tells us the answer to that. In the very simple words, when it says, 
Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation for our sin. What was the price that was paid for God to be our Redeemer? It was the cost of His very own Son, that our sin might be laid on Him. And so as we see this image, we are those that take refuge. But the Redeemer protects, He provides. But He does so on His own choosing and at great cost. Friends, we should never grow cold to God's redemption of us. We should know that when Ruth says, when Boaz says to Ruth, I will do for you, it's not going to be free. It's going to cost Boaz. But he's going to do it because he's choosing to make that, that sacrifice. Let me then bring us to the close. Like Ruth, we need to rest in our Redeemer. It says then in verse 15, he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? I wonder if Naomi slept last night. All right? She probably did. She's like, it'll be fine. All right? She says, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. A man who wants a woman, he's not going to let anything come between it, right? She's like, he's going to deal with it today. Don't you worry. He gave us the barley. He's going to claim you. So there's a couple things here. Here's what she's saying. First of all, it's full trust in the Redeemer. Naomi says to Ruth, wait. Let Boaz do his job now. Let Boaz do the work that's necessary. You rest. You rest. Because he's not going to rest until he accomplishes it. As we are challenged in this, one of the pictures the Bible paints for us is that we are to rest in our Redeemer's work. One of the whole points of redemption is rest. Even beginning in the Old Testament, on the seventh day, God did what? He rested. Jesus comes and he says, put my burden, take my yoke, because the burden is light and it's easy. As we move into Hebrews, he says the whole point is rest, resting in him. And as we would say, look, what, what do we have to do? Friends, we don't have to do anything. We rest in our Redeemer. When Christ is on the cross, then he says, it's finished. There's nothing we need to add to our atonement. All we have to do is let him do his job. Rest in that work and see what happens. The last picture I will show you is just the Lord's faithfulness. Naomi said that she was empty-handed, right, when she came back in chapter 1. I love that her hands right now at the end of this are full of barley. But in just one more chapter, they're going to be full of a baby. And it's just a reminder of God's faithfulness. Naomi is no longer empty-handed. She really never was. But God has restored her in such a way that today she holds barley. Tomorrow she'll hold a baby in his way that he works. I want us to transition uh, from our message this morning to the Lord's table that's right here. We have some deacons who are going to come and serve. And I'll ask that they would come and prepare the table. And as they do, I would share with you the reminders that are on your outline there. A couple reminders as we engage in this table. It's the reminder of when our redemption took place and who accomplished it. We are reminded we have a redeemer. This is not just a story. These are facts. We do have one who set us free from our bondage to sin and death. We are reminded he paid the greatest price. As we will engage in these uh, pieces of bread, you're going to see that they're torn. It's because his body was torn as a part of that price. It was broken. And he is the one who was forsaken and cursed. For us. There's no greater price than to take the punishment for sin from a holy God on behalf of others. 
we are reminded we are loved, and we're loved not uh, because we deserved it or earned it, but because of God's choice. And he would say, I just wish I knew God loved me. Friends, he demonstrated his love, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We are reminded he is our only hope. There's no other means for us to be reconciled to God. And as we're at this table, the reason that we do this table is we look backward. Here's what God accomplished, and we look forward. He's coming back, and we're to proclaim this kindness. I have one that's redeemed me. You need one as well. And that's what this table does. So I'll give us a moment to pray together, and then we'll transition into this table. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for Ruth chapter 3. And as uh, seemingly sketchy at times the passage is, it's actually uh, very beautiful of one who knows that she is in need of redemption and the one who can do the redeeming. Father, we understand that in these pictures we see our own need for redemption. There's nothing we can do to change our situation of sin and the death that comes along with it. But there's something you did. You're one who says, take refuge in me. And in doing so, it means that you will pay the cost in order to cut us loose from the bondage that we're in. And we know that that cost was paid by Christ Jesus. And so we celebrate this table, not out of routine, but we want to be reminded of the great redemption that occurred. And we want to proclaim it to those that are still in bondage. So, Father, as we see the juice and we see the bread, may they remind us they're, they're just shadows pointing to the reality of our Redeemer and the price that was paid. Father, these things should make a difference in how we live our lives. It's in your name we pray.